We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by independent political advisor, Sean Su. Glad to be back. And on the telephone by regular commentator, Donovan Smith in Taichung. And great to be back too as well. Tonight we'll be discussing domestic coronavirus cases from Italian hospital causing some concern, a whole heap of recall news, former Kaohsiung Mayor Han Guoyu mulling running for KMT's chairman, the Supreme Court ordering the retrial of eight Sunflower Movement activists who were sentenced last year for their roles in the occupation of the Cabinet Building in 2014, the top US envoy here in Taiwan touting the island's ability to fill the gap left by the closing of China's Confucius Institutes in America and calls for the government to establish a list of off-limits areas to offshore wind farms due to concerns from fishermen. But we'll begin with heightened coronavirus concerns after several new domestic cases were confirmed this past week. The cases are, as we're recording this show, all linked to a cluster infection at the Taoyuan General Hospital. The original case was a doctor who was treating a patient who had returned to Taiwan from the United States. And since then, it has spread to include other staff at the hospital and several family members of the infected. Health Minister Chen Shijong has described the infection as posing the greatest risk to Taiwan since the pandemic began a year ago. The Taoyuan General Hospital has admitted some 160 coronavirus cases since the pandemic began and on Thursday of this week it actually evacuated all the patients that could be evacuated from the hospital so disinfectant teams and the military and also the local city government's environmental office could go and well disinfect the hospital and also disinfect the surrounding area. However health officials are stressing there is a race to limit the spread of the outbreak and several local governments have issued travel advisories against visiting northern Taiwan. Hospitals island-wide, meanwhile, are now on high alert and are being asked to tighten up their restrictions on visits to inpatients and members of the public are also being advised to avoid visiting hospitals unless it's absolutely necessary. The island's annual Lantern Festival, which was slated to take place in Shinzu, has been cancelled, while several other similar events organised by city and county governments have been postponed. The annual Dihua Street Lunar New Year Market in Taipei has been cancelled. Other cities have cancelled their respective seasonal shopping events and temples island-wide have cancelled both their Lunar New Year and Lantern Festival-related events. So, Sean, it looked good for a while and then all of a sudden we had this uh, cluster infection of domestic cases. Uh, yeah, actually, I think contextually speaking, it's not really that bad of a situation. Um, we're talking about uh, we're living in a country where in a couple of minutes, other countries such as the United States would have far more cases. Um, so I think uh, it's actually very good that we are we do have tracking and contact tracing of all of these cases from this cluster. And yes, even though uh, I believe one of them included a daughter who worked at Mossberger, and so people are panicking about that issue. But contextually speaking, we're still doing better than almost anywhere else on the planet. So I don't really feel that nervous at all. Uh, most of the cases are places limited to Taiwan. But the reality is most Taiwanese people are wearing surgical masks. Uh, they're widely available. And not only that, these are, um, you know, quality made medical devices like medical certified um, surgical masks. So uh, air droplets being spread indoors or outdoors as much isn't really happening uh, as much as we see. Plus, 
there's lots of, uh, uh, you know, anybody who gets sick can easily visit the doctor. They'll get a test. And anyway, so far, there hasn't been many more uh, cases found aside from this cluster. And those infected happen to be living in the same household as these doctors. So I'm not that worried. And Donovan, what's the mood in Taijong about this outbreak in Taoyuan? Well, I, what's interesting is I've noticed that people uh, in my neighborhood have, uh, have, I can see there's a lot more mask wearing. There was the, at, at the beginning of December, they put in the new, the, the new uh, uh, guidelines suggest, you know, making it so that people had to wear masks again out in public places. And it, the, honestly, the compliance is a bit spotty in, in this area. Uh, at the time, but uh, since this latest outbreak, I've noticed that there's been a, a significant uptick in the in the number of people wearing their masks, uh, going to you know Seven Eleven or to the to the local shops. And of course, they've cancelled the um, Lunar New Year shopping festivals in Taichung have been cancelled, and also the Lantern Festival event in Taichung. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it's it's obviously this is this is a you know a preemptive action. And now, you know, sort of as, as Sean said, we don't know, you know, that right now they're they're doing the contact tracing. They're making sure this is all being, you know, followed up on. And there's a very good chance that this latest cluster uh, infection will be contained. Uh, but uh, there is a chance that it won't be. And it, so you could say that they're they're taking an abundance of caution. But then again, an abundance of caution is to a certain degree, why Taiwan has been largely COVID-free up, to, up until this point. And of course, Sean, they cancelled the Main Lantern Festival in Shenzhou, but of course there was some, some contention over this because of course the Shenzhou mayor came out and said, we think it should be cancelled, while the transport minister seemed to ooh and ah about it for a bit. I think erring on the side of caution is probably the best for everyone. Uh, yes, I myself would look forward to visiting the Lantern Festival. Uh, it is something that people want to do. But, you know, as Donovan said, uh, if there is the possibility of making it wider, then why take the risk? It's just not really worth it. Uh, think about uh, the related things. Like, life in Taiwan right now is pretty normal, you know, um, other than wearing masks and, of course, uh, you know, using a lot more alcohol solution than normal. Um, life hasn't really changed. And would we want that to change because of a Lantern Festival? Personally, I'm on the side of being overly cautious. You know, that's exact as, as Donovan said, that is why we are able to have the way of life that we have right now. And of course, going back to the transport minister there, Donovan, of course, he, he started voicing concerns about lot of finances if these events were cancelled. I mean, that is obviously an issue. I mean, a lot of people make a lot of money out of, for example, vending at these events, tourism into the city. And uh, tur tourism businesses have been hit hard by lack of overseas uh, lack of overseas tourists. For example, the hotels generally make a much higher margin off of overseas tourists. And so the domestic tourism, and of course, Lin Jialong, the transport minister, has been promoting domestic tourism quite heavily. Now, at this point, it's really hard to say whether this, you know, this, this, this recent outbreak or this recent cluster will continue to spread. So far, it has continued to spread to a point where it is worrying. I mean, reaching Mossberger and, you know, nothing against Mossberger, just they coincidentally happen to be involved in this. So, I mean, obviously there are economic considerations. 
uh, that that are serious and uh, and the repercussions are are significant. But if you have a situation where this latest cluster or a new cluster that comes out between now and in February, when there is the um, you know when there is the uh, the lantern fe- when the lantern festival was originally scheduled, or worse, you get one of these new more infectious uh, ver- variants uh, from the UK or South Africa. Uh, arrive in the meantime, and then you have the Lantern Festival, and that could turn into a serious super spreader event. Yeah, indeed. You know what? The economic impacts of a pandemic, uh, a complete outbreak, uncontrolled outbreak within Taiwan, is going to far exceed this loss of a Lantern Festival. Might as well write off our losses uh, early instead of taking the big one, if there is one. And moving on to some both local and national political news. Well, residents of Taoyuan this past weekend voted to recall DPP city councillor Wong Hao Yu, making him the first councillor in a special municipality to have ever been recalled. The results of the recall election in the Zhongli district were a pretty one-sided affair, with 84,582 voters casting their ballots in favour of the recall and a mere 7,128 voters opposing it. Now, the total number of ballots cast in favour of the recall was more than 16,298 votes greater than he'd received when he was elected to the Taoyuan City Council in 2018. Wang was a two-time Taoyuan councillor and he was first elected to the seat in 2014 as a representative of the Green Party, but he withdrew from that party in 2020 where he joined the DPP. Now it's been said that Wang was recalled because he supported the recall of KMT Kaohsiung Mayor Hang Yu last June. However, the DPP didn't appear to make much of an effort to persuade voters to actually keep him in office and maybe that had something to do with some of the events that have resulted in Wang issuing several apologies over the past several months and years. Meanwhile, the KMT has a chance to de-seat former New New Power Party, now independent city councillor Huang Jie on February the 6th in a recall vote in Kaohsiung's Fengshan district. That recall vote is also being described as revenge for Huang's support of Hang Guoyu's recall. Huang was initially elected as a member of the New Power Party, but has since become an independent. And of course, she shot to widespread fame after footage of her rolling her eyes as Hang Guoyu you were speaking during a city council meeting. And if all that recall wasn't enough, well, there's more, as the KMT is also looking to recall Taiwan State Building Party lawmaker Chen Wei in Taichung. That recall move was announced by KMT Taipei City Councillor Lord Jiajang, who has seen support from at least one Taichung city councillor and a neighbourhood borough chief. Now, the new party announced its own plans to launch a recall vote against Chen last June, but that fizzled out rather quickly and didn't come to nout. So, Sean, recall votes. Wang was recalled completely. Huang Jie is facing a recall imminently in February, early February. And it looks like Taiwan State Building Party lawmaker Chen Wei could face a recall vote in Taichung. Well, I need to say I wasn't really surprised that Wang got recalled. Um, if you check Chinese Wikipedia, the English one is mercifully uh, missing details, but the Chinese one has over 8,000 characters just for the controversies that he's had. He's had way too many fights and battles. It's actually rather cringy to read, and I went deeper looking into the details of it, and all I just 
you know, I could go on for hours, unfortunately, but uh, to, to sum it up, uh, he had, again, way too many fights, way too many battles, a lot of them not necessarily good. The reason is because he tended to go on these righteous crusades uh, while inadvertently doxing the wrong people or causing all sorts of chaos left and right. So to be fair, a lot of his own voters uh, may not have been compelled to come out to save him. And I wasn't surprised that the DBP didn't come out to really say, hey, let's you know help out our guy here. Uh, also considering that he's relatively new uh, for in the DPP. So he may be entertaining to some, but I can see why he lacks broad appeal, uh, you know, because he's always has something to say about people uh, quite offensively, and he's a little bit quick to do that. And, uh, you know, he didn't even get that, get, win that many votes to get into his position, about 16,292, 16, I think. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Uh, like 8.68%. So, you know, I, I'm not surprised, which is a huge contrast to somebody like Huang Jie, who uh, recently left the NPP, uh, she had a lack of funds when she campaigned, and she's only 28. So she had a very strong foot game. She, uh, her and her campaign went out to meet people, uh, you know, talk to constituents, and that makes her far less likely to get uh, a recalled. I think she will survive because even President Tsai uh, has come out to, you know, defend her, uh, even though she is not part of the DPP. Do you think, Sean, you could say the DPP washed their hands of Wang Haoyu? I could say that. Yeah, he kind of stirs a lot, uh, unnecessarily, I feel. And why do you think that Huang Jia is getting the... Oh, support. of course. Well, Huang Jie is getting the support because um, when she was, well, first of all, she's most famous for rolling her eyes while, you know, trying to get some answers when Han Guoyu was uh, mayor of Kaohsiung. And, you know, she, she, asked, she asked specifically about things like policy, uh, you know, uh, how they're going to be carried out. And uh, Han Guoyu, of course, famously or infamously, did not give her any tangible answers. So I think that uh, in Kaohsiung, especially because, you know, Kaohsiung generally leans deeper green, that she will survive pretty well. Because you're from Kaohsiung, and this vote is in the Fongshan district, which of course is rather a very, it's an incredibly mixed district. Uh, yeah, that's true. I, I think because she has a strong foot game, she'll be able to survive this, but we'll see. If she does fall, then, you know, that might have bigger repercussions. Uh, personally, I want to add a little thing is that a lot of the Han fans tend to be a bit elderly, uh, whereas uh, Huang Jie is 28. Uh, Wang Hongyu was, uh, I think, uh, Oh, he was 32. Yeah. And then uh, Tamboy is uh, 35. So these tend to uh, be a little bit younger. I think there is a bigger political connotation to. Uh, do I think more people will rally around Huang Jie? Yeah, she definitely has more charisma and far less battles and controversy. So I think she will be able to get people out to actually defend her in this recall. That said, the margins for the recall has been made rather low. So I do think it should be raised a little bit too. So Donovan, I'm obviously Wang Hao Yu's recall, a surprise or no surprise? No surprise at all. And 
I, as, as Sean pointed out, it, basically he's offended pretty much everybody along the road, <laughs> including the NPP, the TPP, the KMT. The, the over 80,000 people turned out to turf him out, and just over 7,000 bothered to show up to try and defend him. It was it was a, a complete blowout. Uh, the the DPP washed their hands of him. It was so no, there's no no surprise. And what about, of course, in Taichung, we have Chen Bo Wei, where, of course, the KMT could be looking to dethrone a lawmaker, not a city councillor. Yeah, and that's a much bigger prize. Um, and I think to I, I think watching what happens with Huang Jia will be a very interesting test to see what happens with Chen Bo Wei. I think that... Uh, because the Huangjie recall, the the polling so far, the only poll that I've seen that has come out, basically looks like she's going to be fine. There's a, they're predicting about a 40% turnout and a 55% plan to uh, plan to vote for her, and I think it was 30 something percent uh, plan to uh, agree with her to be recalled. So she's looking like in a pretty strong position. Now, Chemboy, he is, he's sort of, he's, he's offended more people, I think, than Huang Jie has. But on the other hand, I do think that he, he hasn't offended anywhere near as many people as Wong has. And, of course, he's a much bigger prize. Now, his district is an interesting one because this is uh, traditionally, this is a uh, Taichung black faction held by the Yen family. So the, this is going to be an interesting test because the one thing the, the traditional factions have and the black faction has is their ability to mobilize voters. That's going to be – that's particularly crucial because when you have a 25 percent threshold that you need to pass and then you need to get a majority, what it really comes down to is that you, you keep in mind that generally speaking, losing candidates and partisan divide generally gets more than 25 percent. So if you can mobilize, if you're in opposition to whoever the local uh, elected official is, you can mobilize over 25% and vote for recalling the, the, the person, the politician. That's not, it's, it's just a mobilization game. So that threshold is not terribly hard to match as long as you've got a good ground game. So because the black faction is so strong in the area, for them to be able to mobilize that number of people to come out and to vote to turf him out is not an insurmountable task by any means. And so this is going to be an interesting power play by if, this, if they pass both, both stages of the um, signature drives to get this to ballot. This will be a very interesting test to watch how much pull the factions still have in in uh, District 2 in Taichung. Now, if you've got, if they can do that, that's going to be an interesting test. Now, the other interesting test is how many people mobilize, and this is generally a fairly conservative district, mobilize to defend him. And that's going to be another very interesting test, because this relatively conservative district that has gone out and voted for the only Taiwan State Building Party candidate to be elected to the legislature, whether or not they will turn out to support him, that's another very interesting test. So I think that if this happens, if they get all the signatures and it actually goes to recall, this is going to be a very interesting one to watch.
And Sean, I mean, Chembo always possible recall. Uh, Donovan said it does go to a final recall ballot. Do you think we can expect the DPP to be out there actually working to save Chen's seat? Uh, actually, right now, I think maybe they might do that. Uh, I do. I do. What I do know for sure is that if they actually succeed in recalling uh, Tun Boy, the result will be that there is going to be recalls left and right. Uh, everyone's going to do it. And like Donovan said, it's going to be a mobilization game. I'm not sure if anyone wants to get there. It is in DPP's interest to make sure that Tun Boy holds a seat because he is, generally speaking, more of an ally to the DPP than he is to the KMT. So we'll see. Because obviously the, the Taiwan State Building Party, Donovan, really don't have the numbers to lobby for Chen Derimak keep his seat without DPP support. No, exactly. And I, I think there's one very interesting thing about, and, and I think your question is an excellent one, is will the DPP rally to support him? I think a, a, a fundamental dif- difference on on the DPP's attitude toward Huang Jia and, and Chen Boiwei could very well uh, hinge on the fact that Huang Jia is an independent, and she comes out of the same sort of generation that looks up to people like... Um, uh, Lin Feifan and, and these guys, and that came out of the Sunflower Movement. And while she didn't exactly, the that generation, the the DPP has been courting them fairly hard, and they got Lin Feifan into the DPP. They may still hold out hope that they can bring her into the DPP. Now, wh- how they're going to feel about Chemboy is going to be a very interesting thing to watch, because he is... He is in a different party. He doesn't look, at this point, poachable for their own party. So how they're going to approach that is, I think, a very interesting question. Yeah, well, we're, you know, this is why they say Taiwan politics is so interesting. Uh, you know, it will depend on what the DPP does. Uh, personally, I think maybe the DPP should have more allies, but I am not the DPP, so I cannot make that decision for them. And that's where we'll leave it for the first half of the show as we have to take a short break, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and staying with Recall News. Reports this week surfaced saying that former Kaohsiung Mayor Han Guoyu is now mulling running for the post of KMT chairman. Speaking to reporters briefly, current chairman Johnny Jung said as long as the person is qualified, they can run in the election and he respects any such person's candidacy. However, Jung went on to say that he's unaware of Han's plans and has not discussed the matter with the former mayor. The statements come after it was reported that Han has been persuaded to run for the party leadership by several members of a KMT committee and he could make a statement about his intentions after the Lunar New Year holiday. Of course, Johnny Jung was elected to lead the KMT in a by-election on March the 7th of last year after Udini resigned from the post following the KMT's defeat in the presidential election and his chairmanship runs until May the 20th of this year. So Donovan, hang are you for the KMT chairmanship? Um, actually, the election, they, they moved the election date from May into the end of uh, July. Uh, for transitional reasons, um, so but this is a, a, this is very interesting from the KMT's perspective. Looking at this, the, this is the I think from a KMT perspective, 
electing him to be, be the party chair, they could look at the fact that he got more votes than Eric Chu did back in 2016. Because it's, it's important to keep in mind that traditionally within the KMT, although this wasn't the case in the last election, and for a period in the 2016 it wasn't the case, but generally speaking, the KMT chair is the presidential candidate. So whoever becomes the KMT chair, if that KMT chair survives the 2022 local elections, in other words, they're not totally blown out, that person is the presumptive KMT candidate for president. So this would mean if they choose him, there's a chance that he would become the candidate again next time in 2024. Now, from the KMT perspective, he got more votes than Eric Chu did in 2016, and he, he, he was instrumental in the big local election wave in 2018. However, he did lose by a landslide in, in the 2020 presidential election. So from a KMT perspective, this is kind of dodgy. But here's the thing. According to some reporting in uh, Mirror Media, I saw apparently uh, during the run-up to the presidential election, he and his supporters were packing the KMT membership with tens of thousands of new members, specific hand-fan members, to pack the party membership. Now, out of the hundreds of thousands, that's not a majority by any means, but it, it does mean that there is and will be a solid faction within the base of the KMT membership that would want to vote for him. And another thing that we know for a fact about Han is that he wants the position. He grew up within the party, and being a KMT party chair is an exalted position if you grow up within the KMT. And we know he wants it because he ran for it before against uh, Wu Duanyi and came in, I think, fourth in that one. He basically barely registered. But he, so we know he wants the position. We know he's got a base within the party. But I think the majority of the party is going to look at this and, and they're going to have to think about whether or not this is going to actually be a path they want to follow on. In other words, back him again for potentially another presidential run. Now, if you're a DPP supporter, you probably are hoping and praying that he becomes the next KMT chair because he, his position in mainstream political opinion, considering he's been recalled and he got crushed in the last presidential election, and according to most reports, he wasn't exactly the most effective leader within uh, in the Kaohsiung city government when he was mayor there, uh, he could potentially run the party into the ground. So uh, DPP supporters are probably jumping up and down and going, oh, please, oh, please. Oh, yeah, indeed, because um, also the KMT chairmanship, I think the terms are a bit longer now. It was recently... Four years. Four years, right? And But he can only run once, I think, or is he allowed to run more than that? It's once. I think, I think it's two terms. It's only two but, terms? Yeah. yeah. So one of the issues is that, um, yeah, you were indeed right, Donovan, that he came in fourth, only had 5.84%, uh, only 16,141 votes. But that was 2017, uh, where meanwhile Wu Denyi had 100 44,408 votes, making 52%. Uh, so do I think uh, Han, those numbers will change? Yeah, actually, yes, because he managed to win Kaohsiung. But let's not forget uh, that 
he was quite lucky because, uh, you know, partially due to the fact that he had a surprise victory there, uh, also because maybe he was a little bit underestimated. We can we can all remember that when he ran for mayor of Kaohsiung, that a lot of people didn't think he could win. Definitely the KMT didn't. Uh, a lot of members of the KMT pretty much thought it was a throwaway, right? Uh, but Han is a longtime politician. He has been uh, definitely holding office since 1993, at least. Uh, and so... I actually think he might win uh, the KMD chairmanship. And as Donovan said, yes, because the the DPP would love Han to run the KMT, especially to the ground. Han is known for saying a lot of things that harms himself. Um, for instance, uh, there are multiple times where he went over abroad and he decided to try to say something in English, right? And uh, even though he is, I believe, an English literature major, uh, you know, his ability to speak wasn't that strong and he could have used aids or a translator to make sure he sounded good, but he didn't. Uh, other things that are related to that are the fact that he had so many gaffes while running for president as well. Uh, you know, there wouldn't be a, a day where you wouldn't hear something about, oh, check out what Hango Yi said, uh, you know, uh, how controversial, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, in a way, he will garner a lot of uh, attention to the KMT, more so than they are now, uh, as the KMT learns how to be an opposition party, but not all of that will be positive. But there's a, it's a, I think there's a very, a very interesting question is, who is going to run for the next KMT chair? It's pretty obvious that Eric Chu or Zhu Liluan is going to run. That seems to be pretty obvious. And he is actually still within the top 10 most popular politicians within the country. Now, here's something that I also find really interesting is, and I don't know exactly what what he's doing, is Maing Zhou has been very active politically. And I don't know if he's doing it just simply so that he can keep relevance within the party and keep his loyalists happy so that he still has some influence uh, you know, in his retirement, or if he's going to plan to run. We don't know. Another possibility, the most popular politician in the country, Hoyoi, now there's been no signs, there's been no indication that he will run, but if he did, that could totally throw things off as well. Um, there have been some talk of some other people running, but I think those are the major players. Right now, if I had to guess, most likely it's uh, Eric Chu. He he would be the one that would probably be most likely to win if he runs, which I'm pretty sure he will, uh, because I think that there's some crossover uh, between Han fans and him. But here's the interesting thing. Both he and Han lost in a landslide against Tsai Ing-wen in presidential elections. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I personally, uh, Hou Yu is by far the most popular. Uh, I do think he may have presidential aspirations, but he's also very guarded. Uh, Ma ying indeed has been in news uh, he, coming out recently and blood drives and trying to get on, uh, you know, attention for that. Do I think Ma ying will run for chairman? 
Hmm. Again, this will be exciting to see. Not sure. Uh, in terms of um, Hondo, uh, I think that's that's the most exciting bit, but I don't think that's really good for the KMT. Right now, if the KMT wants to stay relevant, they really do need to um, you know, reform themselves in a way that gets out of uh, the traditional... Um, b- blue guard uh, sort of uh, 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 ideals and uh, unfortunately uh, I don't not sure if Han is definitely one of them Eric has a chance of doing that uh, Ho Yo Yi is an unknown um, so again exciting times and moving away from politics but slightly moving away from politics and talking about more about law and order and the Supreme Court on Monday of this week ordered the retrial of eight Sunflower Movement activists who were sentenced last year for their roles in the occupation of the Cabinet Building in 2014. The case has now been returned to the High Court. The eight individuals, including Dennis Way, were sentenced by the High Court in April of 2020 for inciting others to commit crimes related to the occupation of the complex during the student-led protests. Way and the other defendants all appealed the case to the Supreme Court, however. Now, following that the Supreme Court's ruling, the China Times led with a story on its front page the day after the Supreme Court made that ruling, and it screamed, Why are those who stormed the US Capitol building deemed as terrorists while those who stormed the executive UN see their sentences thrown out, Sean? Yeah, I, I, I think uh, there, there, a lot of people have come out to talk about this, including uh, Lin Feifang, who is uh, the DPP Secretary General, who we just talked about moments ago. Um, he, I think he and others pointed out that 318, or basically the people who occupied the legislative UN, uh, were found not guilty in 2018, even though technically they broke the law, right? You know, they trespassed and all that, uh, but they were nonviolent. However, the 323, which is basically March 23, those guys who the same relatively included the same uh, group of people uh not everyone though also stormed the executive yen but they were found guilty now uh as people have stated before the the supreme court could have made if they since they felt uh, it was a, the the sentencing by the high court was a little bit too harsh they themselves could have easily uh gave them you know a slap on the wrist or uh, as they said you know um, civil disobedience is a right of the people etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, but they didn't. Instead, what they did was they kicked it back down to the high court, which to everybody sends a very strong message that indeed uh, they think maybe the high court should reassess the way it uh, uh, you know, tackles all of these cases. Now, keep in mind... Uh, this only means it's going to extend even longer, you know, uh, and it's been uh, three years longer since the 318 or the people who were occupied the legislative yuan. So this case has dragged on long enough. And I guess they intended to do this. Um, Personally, I think uh, the easy way out would have easily been to give them a slap on the wrist and end it there. But they didn't. And Donovan, of course, the Supreme Court said in its ruling this week that the High Court failed to look into the reason for the defendant's behaviour, didn't thoroughly investigate and explain if the behaviour of the defendants constituted the crime of inciting others to commit crimes in the first place. I, I, this is what I really find fascinating. This really jumped out at me in the reporting on this. Is and I'm going to read actually here from a CNA reporting. In its ruling yesterday, the court revoked the guilty verdicts and ordered a retrial based on the argument that the defendants were exercising the right of resistance or civil disobedience as part of their right to freedom of expression. 
The right of resistance is used to protect and restore a democratic constitutional order and is legal and legitimate under the Constitution, the court said. Although the Constitution does not explicitly stipulate the right to resistance, it should still be recognized based on the constitutional principles under popular sovereignty, it said. Therefore, behavior that exercises the right of resistance can be used to defeat or mitigate the legal consequences of what might otherwise be an unlawful conduct, it said. Now, I thought this was really fascinating that they came out and specifically and explicitly said the right to resistance and civil disobedience are something that is the this is the defense against what, as they put it here, might otherwise be unlawful conduct. And that I thought was a really powerful statement on the rights. It, it leads to, you know, of course, it, I think it stems to a certain degree from freedom of speech and, and, and rights of assembly. But I thought that was a really strong statement in that people, in, pe- in people's sovereignty and their ability to protest. Um, so I, I thought that was actually really quite interesting. Now, I, I don't think precedent plays quite the same role here in the... Uh, legal system. I'm not a lawyer, so I can't really say for sure, but my, uh, from what I, I gather, it doesn't play quite the same role as it does in, a, in, in, in you know, English common law uh, systems. But it's still, I thought, a very powerful statement. But do you think the Supreme Court passed the buck back to the High Court because the Supreme Court really didn't want to be involved in this? Uh, no, I don't, I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, to me, this feels like they were making a statement on, on this issue. Um, that they came out with such very specifically right of resistance, that smells to me, and again, I'm not a lawyer, but it smells to me like this. that's a really interesting thing to say and to defend. Um, it, it, so they, I think that they are trying to send a message, and again, I'm not a lawyer, so I may be reading too much into this, but they're, they may be sending a message to the lower courts that this is something you really need to keep in mind when when you're passing judgment on these kinds of cases. Yeah, indeed. Uh, uh, you know, um, that's I, I also fathom the same way. Like I said, they could have just easily uh, made their own ruling and it would have passed. But here they're definitely sending a message. I also do think that there's also a wider connotation regarding this uh, for some context um, during the executive yuan when they stormed the executive yuan or tried to occupy it. Um, the it was also infamous because the police had abused people. It was caught on camera, and the faces of these officers were clearly seen uh, in high resolution. They were recorded by media. And to this day, the police refuse to cooperate by saying that they cannot find these people despite obvious uh, these cops who had uh, um, uh, attacked these protesters and uh, manhandled them. So potentially, if one day there is some sort of tribunal or something that looks into this and uh, to be honest, these cops are very easily identifiable by internally. Uh, maybe the high court will also reconsider uh, you know, how they rule on these cases as well. 
And looking at news about America-Taiwan issues, well, American Institute in Taiwan director Brent Christensen this week called on Taiwan to deepen its cooperation in education with the United States and says the closure by American universities of Beijing's Confucius Institute offers a unique opportunity to boost that relationship. And he said now is the time for Taiwan to step forward and fill the gap left by the closure of the institutes. Donovan, so you think Taiwan should be, have its own Confucius Institutes, only call them something completely different? I, I think that, that that actually might be a very good idea. Um, historically, American diplomats um, and students of the Chinese language, they studied in Taiwan and tended to be much more pro-Taiwan than those that studied in China. <clears throat> so, the, and of course, if there was a Taiwan-led institute, it would be much more simpatico with American values on things like freedom of speech and democracy. So, you know, and you could talk about the Tiananmen incident and so on and so forth. So these touchy issues which the Confucius Institutes do everything they can possibly do to suppress can come out. And I think that this would create an environment for learning Mandarin that inherently just simply by not not even trying to go out in any way, shape, or form to propagandize, just simply by allowing open discussions, uh, would actually make Taiwan look and make Taiwan more influential in those people who are studying, for example, for diplomatic service or academia or journalism who study who study Mandarin for their potential careers that later put them in a position where they're influencing others. So uh, ultimately, I think it would actually be, although probably expensive, it probably would in the long term produce a lot of very positive uh, effects and impact on Taiwan-U.S. relations, Taiwan's position in the world, how it's perceived in uh, academic circles by journalists, and uh, just in general, I, I do think that it would have very positive impact. Yeah, indeed. Uh, you know, China didn't spend billions of dollars on the Confucius Institutes just to waste money. Uh, they knew that it was a very strong soft power, a uh, piece of soft power. Um, you know, so that, that you know, and during Confucius Institutes, not only that, the Confucius Institutes were used to often have MOUs with universities and groups to actually suppress the voices of Tibetans, Uyghurs, and, of course, Taiwanese. So, in fact, yes, there is a soft power thing here by showing that Taiwan offers a great alternative that will likely not have um, that negativity in forcing universities to compensate or to give up a big portion of their morality or ethics. Um, Personally, I think it's going to be a great opportunity to expand traditional Chinese around the world, too. That's another factor, especially because that could make uh, more accessible, uh, you know, uh, classic literature. Uh, Of course, uh, you know, traditional Chinese is also very uh, uh, attractive because it could be it could help, you know, readers um, read even some Japanese like kanji, right? Uh, So those those are some benefits there. But I also know that a lot of people were exposed through Taiwan through their time in college. You know, uh, I think that may have been the case for Donovan. Uh, A lot of the expats here in Taiwan would say things like, you know, uh, I first uh, went to Taiwan during some sort of college exchange or a college trip, or some people told me I should visit. So I did during a gap year during college. I think 
uh, if Taiwan has their own uh, version of the Confucian Institutes, but that were more free, then yeah, they're definitely the soft power thing is there. Plus, um, uh, Brent Christensen was talking about this uh, during an event where 60 teachers uh, under the full, uh, Fulbright Foreign Language Teaching Assistant Program or FLTA were going to teach. Uh, they're from Taiwan, young people going to the states. So there's some uh, job opportunities, uh, learning opportunities for them as well. Personally, I think it's a win-win. Taiwan should spend its money here uh, also because it's a great opportunity. Fill in those gaps, get those universities talking about Taiwan, uh, showing them there is an alternative. And you know what? Technically speaking, they wouldn't even have to spend that much. Uh, much cheaper than you know a war or you know buying more weapons, uh, which of course Taiwan needs. You know, yeah. And before we go this week, DPP lawmakers Lai Pin Yu and Hong Shen Han joined environmentalists in calling on the central government to establish restricted areas for offshore wind farm projects for environmental protection reasons. Now, the move comes amid concern that a subsidiary of a German company is seeking to establish an offshore wind farm project in waters off northeastern parts of the island. That wind farm project is reportedly set to be located around the Pangja, Huaping and Mianhua islets off the coast of Jilong. The plan has been slammed by local fishermen and government officials alike due to concerns that it could jeopardise access to traditional fishing grounds, where a large part of Taiwan's annual offshore fishing catch actually comes from. So, of course, Donovan, you're near Zhanghua, where you have a lot of offshore wind farms. And apparently the argument here is, although it's a bit more complex than this, but the basic crux of the argument is this company was allowed to pick the place it wanted to locate the wind farm rather than that location being on a government list of places it deemed okay to put a wind farm? Well, I, the, the offshore wind farms that are down here in central Taiwan, there was, there was extensive, uh, ex, extensive consultations on that. Um, so I'm, so I, I'm kind of a little surprised on this one. Um, but the, there's, there's a series of competing interests that have come up here in, in central Taiwan, and particularly in Zhanghua, where the majority of these offshore wind farms are located. The fishermen have been pretty vocal in their opposition. Um, but on the other hand, it's been a big windfall for the, uh, ca- the Zhanghua County government. And uh, the former county commissioner, Wei Minggu, uh, he kept talking about how he wanted to make Zhanghua the Saudi Arabia of wind power. Um, and, but, and Orsted, the, the biggest company that's involved, they're not the only one, but the biggest one, they've you know, invested heavily in promoting local They've been donating a lot of money locally in Zhanghua uh, as part of a public relations move and training people, and so they've been involved in the local community. So they're very, you know, so the local government is very supportive of them, and of course they get a lot of tax revenues. So now, on the other hand, environmentalists have been talking about, and this has been a big problem, is the humpback dolphin, the the endangered dolphins that live on the coast of Taiwan. Now, the question is, and I think Sean knows a little bit more about this than I do, but the the these wind farms, it's unclear whether or not they're actually helping or hurting the help pr- protect these pr- these endangered dolphins because the endangered dolphins, they. They are quite often when they're examined, they have wounds and scars that are usually inflicted by fishing boats 
or fishing nets or and there's a very small number of them left now if you put these wind farms there that make it actually hard for the fishing boats to to be in the area that may actually protect the dolphins but on the other hand sound and vibrations are known to affect them so we don't really actually know what the wind farms have what the impact on them is so I, I don't really know. I think, Sean, maybe you can chime in here. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, one of the problems, I think, is we have to think about other alternative sources of energy if we're not using wind. Uh, are, we using, are we going to compensate by using solar? Are we going to use more coal plants or, uh, you know, LNG, like, you know, a natural gas? Um, overall, for the general environment, of course, these wind farms and offshore wind farms are good. They're a lot better for Taiwan and the ecology in general, right? That said, in terms of these locations, there's concerns. Why? Because construction periods have been something of great concern to environmentalists, for example, such as sea ostriches have been named as uh, ones that could be affected because they're planning to do construction at the time where they're migrating. And also, there's uh, sea mammals and uh, fish and marine mammals, uh, you know, that will be displaced, displaced by the noise of construction. Uh, and these are some things that have been discussed widely as well. However, uh, I did read a lot of articles as well as studies and research papers that have shown that around the world, wind farms do act as artificial reefs, at least the areas immediately surrounding them. Plus, the wind turbines are, relatively speaking, given how massive the, these spaces are um, actually relatively small. You know, they're basically, uh, they have a small foundation. You know, it's just a, a pole and there's some wiring involved. And by the way, most of the wiring, or at least half of them, apparently have already been laid down as is. Um, because they act as artificial reefs, yes, that does provide dolphins and fish more time to uh, uh, grow back. At the same time, it actually doesn't affect or hurt uh, fishing as much because they won't be trawling uh, their nets in all the places, resulting in chances for the ecosystem to grow back. That said, there is no uh, known long-term consequences, you know, uh, of the results of this. Of course, there's similar things that we know about. For example, uh, you know, um, abandoned or scuttled ships have been used to make artificial reefs. But again, um, the footprint of these wind farms will be minimal. Now, the noise. Uh, during construction, indeed, it will displace them. But uh, will the noise displace them of, of the wind turbines? Will they displace them year-round? Uh, not really much. Uh, do I really think wind farms will also kill a lot of the seabirds? Uh, studies elsewhere show that the amount is negligible. Um, so therefore, uh, this could use some adjustment. With some adjustment, uh, I do think the ruling government in Taiwan could definitely make this work well. Uh, so maybe they should just uh, pause a little bit, let the environmental groups uh, spend a little bit more time on this, reassess a little bit, and then move forward. Uh, because, you know, uh, the wind farms, you know, they could be relocated, uh, but there's a reason why this spot was picked. It's windy! Windy. And you need wind, of course, for a wind farm. <laughs> anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Sean Su. Loved being here. Thanks. And on the telephone by Donovan Smith in Taichung. And thanks for having me.
And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.